Amen. I thought for a second I forgot to turn my mic on, but no, it's on. Uh, good morning, Cedar Mill. Thank you. I love that. So I am taking us through continuing on our series in tension. And before we get into our text today, I want to take a moment to set the scene for you all to provide a little bit of context of where we're going. Jesus and the disciples had entered Jerusalem. Jesus came riding in on a colt, as we know this was the triumphal entry. People lined the streets and some even shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Word had gotten out that Jesus was here, but not everybody was excited. In fact, some were furious and feeling threatened by his presence. Shortly after coming to Jerusalem, Jesus went into the temple courts and chased out those who were buying and selling there. He turned over the tables for, of the money changers and he said not, he need, and he didn't allow anyone else to come in to sell and carry merchandise in the temple court. Simultaneously while doing this, he said, is it not written my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus would continue to preach and teach in his last days. He and the disciples would sit down for what we know as the last supper that occurred on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread. As we know, one of the 12 would leave that meal to sell Jesus out. But ultimately, all of the 12 would betray Jesus. After finishing their meal, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying and crying out to God. A short time later, an angry mob would come and take him captive. And then we have that big scene that we're familiar with of Peter being enraged that his friend was being taken. And he grabs a sword and he cuts off one of the people's ears. And of course, Jesus being Jesus takes time and restores that man's ear. Then Jesus ends up in front of the high priest in an illegal trial where he is falsely accused of blasphemy. Witnesses were brought forth to give testimony, but they were false testimony. And no one, his disciples included, stood in solidarity with Jesus. He was all alone. Even Peter, who had promised his devotion and fought for him earlier, had decided to abandon and disassociate himself from Jesus, denying his friend three times. The high priest and the chief priests were looking for any evidence to put Jesus to death, but they could not obtain any testimony that would give them the power to do that themselves. So they would send him to Pilate, the Roman governor, which brings us to our passage today. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Mark 15, verses 1 through 15. And if you don't, the scripture will be on the screen. Very early in the morning, the chief priest with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. 
The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one call, with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now, the events leading up to this moment, which I highlighted earlier, Jesus' triumphal entry, chasing out the money changers in the temple courts, continuing to preach and teach, had put Jesus on what would be the equivalent of the FBI's most wanted list in Jerusalem. His presence was shaking up people's traditional views on power and religious and political structures. Religious leaders of the day were concerned that he was stirring up people too much, and this would lead to rebellion. Luke 23 says this, but they insisted he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and Galilee and has come all the way here. This accusation of Jesus being a troublemaker would be made any time Jesus would talk about the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man. As I was studying this section of scripture, two things stood out to me, and I think these two things were the reason that so many, including the religious leaders of the day and Pilate, were so threatened by Jesus' message. It would be these two things that would lead religious leaders and others in power at the time away from Jesus. And if we're not careful, these two things will lead us away from him as well. The two things I'm referring to are, one, the idolization of people's approval and power, and two, the fear of people's disapproval and the loss of power. And these two things influence one another. I believe that we have let idolatry and fear lead us away from Jesus, and these were the same things that sentenced Jesus to death. We are just as much responsible for the death of Jesus as Pilate and those in the crowd that were shouting for his crucifixion. It would be easy for us to sit back and read this text without inserting ourselves into the story, right? Without feeling the tension, the tension that would lead us to repentance and growth in our relationship with Jesus. So let's rewind a moment before we look at Pilate's interaction with Jesus in the text and go back to something that Dave mentioned last week to give us some history. 
In case you've forgotten, the Sanhedrin uh, was a group of was a group of people that handed Jesus over to Pilate, and the Sanhedrin was basically the supreme court of ancient Israel. The text says that in the morning, the Sanhedrin, the council over which the high priest presided, met and determined to hand Jesus over to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. They made this decision because they were under Roman rule. They themselves could not carry out the death penalty. We know this because of John 18, 31, where Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And they would reply, but we have no right to execute anyone. They objected. So they needed Pilate's help. We actually don't know a ton about Pilate. Some say he was a cruel man. Some say that he would eventually come to know Jesus later in life. For all we know, both of those things may or may not be true. But what we do know is that normally Pilate would have been in Caesarea Maritime on the Mediterranean Sea. But given the number of Jewish pilgrims who had traveled to Jerusalem for Passover, he was present in the holy city to maintain order. And this was by no mistake, but, but, but by God's design. It's important to keep in mind that all of this was happening during Passover. Passover commemorates the Hebrews' liberation from slavery in Egypt. Jewish people still celebrate Passover today. Most of us are familiar with the Passover account found in Exodus 12, where each family killed a lamb at twilight and then put the blood over, of the lamb over the sides and tops of the door frames. This was to be assigned to the Lord to pass over the Israelites, causing no harm or destruction during the plagues that would take place in Egypt. It says in Exodus 12, 13, the blood will be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. The fact that the trial of Jesus was happening in the time of Passover was no coincidence because Jesus would ultimately become the sacrificed lamb, the one true sacrifice to all and for all of humankind. But in order for Pilate to be willing to execute Jesus, he would need to find him guilty of something, a crime against Rome a crime like sedition. And sedition, for those of you who don't know, is an overt conduct such as speech or organization that tends toward rebellion against established order. In our current context, and this may ruffle some feathers, just warning, this would look like what happened on January 6th in 2021 when some, not all, stormed into the Capitol building to cause harm and to take captive government officials to overthrow the government. Jesus, let's be clear, was not trying to overthrow government or cause a rebellion. But since it was said that Jesus was claiming to be Messiah, the Jewish king, this is how it was taken, because the Jews were to have no king but Caesar by the law. 
So Pilate asked Jesus, as we see during this interaction in Mark 15, verse 2, are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus replied, you have said so. Pilate goes on to ask Jesus if he's going to answer the question, but Jesus made no reply. He's stoic. Pilate wasn't getting the response he desired from Jesus, so he kept getting the silent treatment. And we know what the silent treatment does, right? We get annoyed when people give us the silent treatment. Pilate was annoyed by this. Some of you parents know what that feels like too when you ask your kids to do something and they just give you the silent treatment or they give you the whatever, which is just like the silent treatment also. However, although Pilate was annoyed, he was also amazed Pilate was amazed, the scripture says, that in the face of death and so many people's disapproval, the posture of Jesus never wavered. Although certainly Jesus was feeling a lot of things, as we could imagine in those moments. He was feeling a whole bunch of things, but two things he wasn't feeling. He wasn't feeling doubt or fear, I don't believe. He was confident about what lied before him, having spent time with his father in prayer. In those moments before Pilate, Jesus didn't feel the need to prove anything to anyone or convince anyone who he was. He was fully trusting and he fully believed that God would do all of that in his timing. He was assured of his identity. Jesus was not a people pleaser. As I mentioned before, it's important that Passover is taking place at this time. And so Pilate, being annoyed and amazed and a little confused, he remembered that each year during the Passover festival, the tradition of releasing a prisoner that the Jews requested. And he did this to appease the people in Mark 15, 6 and 8. Upon remembering this tradition at Passover, I think Pilate was probably thinking one of two things. And scripture doesn't say this, but I think these things were running through his mind. The first one was surely the Jewish people, if given the choice between Jesus and a well-known criminal, they wouldn't choose Jesus, right? And the second thing I think ran through his mind was if I give them two options and they choose Jesus, then my hands are clean. We see the idolization of people's approval and the fear of disapproval and loss of power well in Pilate and the religious leaders in this text. Let me pause for a moment and say something here. In that moment that Pilate chose to be a bystander and not make the right decision, he was still responsible for what, took hap- for what took place. Being a bystander in the face of wrongdoing or any kind of injustice does not mean that our hands are clean or that we get a free pass. The consequences of doing nothing are too great. To do nothing means that we have grown comfortable with iniquity and injustice in our midst. And this grieves the heart of God, and it should grieve our heart as well. You see, Pilate was way more concerned with keeping power and approval and with people-pleasing than doing what was right. 
And we know how the story goes. When Pilate asked the crowd if they wanted him to release the popular teacher, the king of the Jews, the chief priest stirred up the crowd, as the text says, and asked instead for Barabbas, someone who ironically was a murderer and had been part of a staged rebellion against Roman rule. When Pilate asked what they wanted him to do with Jesus, the people shouted, crucify him. And Marie Noonan's commentary, The Gospel According to Mark, she writes that Mark shows that the ones interrogating Jesus aren't really concerned with what Jesus has done, but how his identity might threaten their own identity. In other words, those that were in power were concerned that if Jesus went unchecked, that they would lose their power, that their way of life would be disrupted. And I want to pose to you that that is exactly what the gospel does. It should disrupt our way of life. They were concerned that if they follow Jesus, that their whole ideology and identity would need to shift and that this was just too big a price to pay. To follow Jesus, to be a disciple, was just too big a price to pay. Does that sound familiar? I believe that we're living in a time where people who profess Jesus are and have been deciding that the cost of discipleship is just too big a price to pay. Jesus talks about this cost in Mark 8.34 when he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And to that I say, yes, the cost is great, but the reward is even sweeter. Friends, we've become more concerned with the identity that the world, our friends, our family, and our neighbors have given us than the identity that Jesus Christ has called us to once we professed him as our Lord and Savior. We no longer want to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. And that's exactly what the world needs today is a bunch of people who are devoted to following Jesus no matter what. In today's world, I believe the American church's idea of power, success, and values too often mirror that of the world than of the kingdom of God. And it's gotten us in to trouble. I've been asking myself these questions lately. What do people see when they look at us here at Cedar Mill? I would challenge you to ask yourself these questions as well. What does God see? Does he see a church and people who are willing to take up their cross and follow Jesus no matter the cost? Does he see a church that's more focused on people pleasing and than praising God? When your neighbors and friends and family look at you, what do they see? If we want to avoid falling into the fear-driven pattern of idolatry and people-pleasing, we must remember three things. And these three things are God first in all things, prayer first in all things, humility and love first in all things. 
And these things help us to live out what Paul writes in Colossians 3, 1 through 5. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It goes on to say, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And idolatry is anything that is allowed to take the place of God in our lives. It doesn't necessarily have to be a thing that we can see. And I believe that most of us don't necessarily create golden calves anymore. Most of us do idolize approval. As I come to a close, here's what I want us to remember this week. We are to be seeking to please our Heavenly Father first before seeking to please the people around us. And sometimes pleasing God means disappointing and not gaining the approval of people around us. The mentality that puts the approval of people first and God second or money and power first and God second, is an age-old problem. It reminds me of two more scripture. The first in Matthew 6, 24, which says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Matthew 6, 24. The second can be found in 1 Kings when Ahab was calling the prophet Elijah a troubler of Israel. To which Elijah replied, I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed Baal's. In 1 Kings 18, 18, Elijah goes on to say how long, he's asking the people, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. All Elijah was doing, he wasn't trying to cause trouble, but what he was doing was challenging the people to put God in his rightful place. And today, I want us to be mindful to put and keep Jesus in his rightful place in our church and in our lives. This week, I want you to read and reflect on Mark 15, 1 through 15. Sit with God in prayer and ask yourself, where would I be in this story? Who would I be in this story? Am I just a bystander? Be honest with yourself. Have you been more concerned with people pleasing and gaining their approval than pleasing and gaining the approval of Jesus? If I'm honest, sometimes I'm this person. I am more concerned with what the world thinks about me and what people think about me. And that changes how I react and respond to things around me. Cheryl Sanders, in an article she wrote for Christianity Today, points us to reflect on the African-American spiritual, were you there? 
Most of you are familiar with this. And this spiritual predates the Civil War. The spiritual challenges us to consider what it would have been like to be an eyewitness to the crucifixion. The first three lines of the song are, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. The thought of these days leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, the tension therein should cause us to tremble. Cheryl goes on to say that the spiritual inquiry of this song remains instructive for us today. She asked if you were there, did you identify with Jesus as the victim of state-sanctioned violence? Did you take note of his betrayal, arrest, trial, taunting, humiliation, torture, and execution by the ruling government at the bequest of religious authorities? If you were there, did you sympathize instead with those who crucified him because you were convinced of the necessity to enforce the law and maintain order at any cost? If so, is your solidarity with Jesus and his cross or with those who demanded his death? Today, I want you to ask yourself, where does your solidarity lie? With Jesus or with man? As the worship team comes to the stage, join me in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for truth. I thank you that you've put us in a body who loves you, Lord, and I just pray that you would continue to help us live in these days loving you way more than we love the things of this world. I pray for each of my friends, Lord, as they go out today, Father, that they would be strengthened down deep and reassured of their identity in you, that you have called them, that you have sent them, and that you will protect them, Lord, and that you will never leave them and forsake them. God, we thank you for all that you are doing. We thank you for all that you have done. And we thank you in advance for all that you will do in and through us, in and through our church, and in and through your spirit, through your world, to make yourself known all the more. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.